0: you're listening to well now slates podcast on health and wellness i'm maya Fowler,
1: and i'm kafita patel and honestly maya who amongst us is not stressed out i will speak for myself and say that there are a few times where i'm not feeling constant pressure to do more. And if it's not doing more,
0: it's being more and accumulating more and trying for more. Oh my goodness, Kavita, I'm with you, hand up right here. And it is not your fault. I mean, there are so many things in this world that are causing us stress. Americans are paying the price for rising inflation.
2: Israeli warplanes pounded southern Gaza, including Rafah. The CDC says COVID cases are on the rise across the U.S., with almost every
1: state reporting a spike in new infections. A new ABC News Ipsos poll shows most Americans,
0: 76 percent of those polled, think the country is headed in the wrong direction. Stresses all around us, from the individual demands of our jobs and our families to the overwhelming issues like environment and the economy. I mean, these are huge things that we all have to come to terms with and systemic barriers and injustice and inequity like racism and sexism. Not to mention the sheer number of messages and dings and emails and social media notifications that are demanding and vying for our attention just about every single hour of the day. It's nearly impossible to live a quote-unquote stress-free life.
1: Yeah, my let's be real. How many browser windows do you have open? And let's talk turkey. I think I constantly rotate between 50 and 100, and that's just the start We do, however, have a wealth of science now, Maya, backing up the fact that chronic stress negatively impacts our health. It's important to realize that higher stress can lead to higher risk for almost every single chronic condition, including coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's, and even more. And if I'm being honest, as someone who stays up to date with the science, knowing these actual connections and reading about them actually causes me more stress because you feel like you're in this never-ending cycle.
0: Oh my goodness, Kavita, you are literally not the only one. I feel the same way, which is why this week on Well Now, we're tackling chronic stress with someone who's spent more than 20 years working with patients on mindfulness and stress management. But before we get to that, Kavita, I'm interested to know a little bit more about your relationship with stress. How are you navigating that?
1: Well, one could say I'm not navigating it, but I do try to put away my phones when I'm around my children, and I do also draw incredibly hard barriers at work. By the way, that's not something that I could have done early in my career. It feels like you can only do that when you have a certain degree of seniority or authority. In the workplace to say, no, I'm not available. No, I cannot do that at that time. So I deal with the stress by, I call it the edit and delete function of my life. I try to edit things and make sure that I'm not distracted. And I delete things as much as I can. What about you, Maya? What do you do and how do you deal with stress?
0: So, Kavita, it's interesting. That really resonated when you said, you know, you have the now luxury of actually saying no to things, right? That is something that is only new for me, I would say, in the last five years, right, of my career, to be able to say like, no, actually, I'm not going to do that, and setting that barrier. So that's something that I'm working on. I have done a lot of mind-body work. And when I say a lot, I mean a ton People have probably seen me in saunas and steam rooms. That's something that, you know, I really lean into. I'm a big runner, not an obnoxious one, because like I don't talk about it that much, but it is something that I enjoy. And as often as I can, I really like to be in nature, particularly wilderness, because guess what? There's no self-service in the wilderness. And so when I say you can't reach me, you really can't reach me. And you know Kavita, while I consider myself like pretty well versed in taking care of myself around stress, you know, I always like to know more ways to mitigate it. And in some cases, like how do we actually prevent it in the first place?
1: Yeah, it's preventive care. We talk so much about it in primary care and prevention. And that is exactly why after this break, we're going to speak with a neurologist turned mindfulness expert, turned best-selling author on ways to quiet what she calls our busy brains. Stick around. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss.
0: You're listening to Well Now from Slate. I'm Maya Feller.
1: And I'm Kavita Patel. We can't talk about stress without first addressing where it starts in our bodies, the brain. Our guest has spent much of her career as a neurologist and board-certified practitioner in integrative medicine, studying the brain and what happens when it experiences chronic stress. Dr. Romy Mushtak is now a wellness consultant for Fortune 500 companies and is the chief wellness officer of Great Wolf Resorts. Her latest book is called The Busy Brain Cure, the eight-week plan to find focus, tame anxiety, and sleep again. I cannot think of Any three things I would not want more, and Romy, I really enjoyed reading this book. Thank you so much for joining us on Well Now.
2: Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Kavita, for having me.
1: And we'd love to start off by asking you a question we ask all our guests. Romy, how do you define wellness?
2: You know, wellness to me is so much more than I was taught in medical school. In medical school, it started as the absence of disease. Wellness to me is that you are in alignment with your soul's purpose and that you have energy in your spirit, in your brain, and your body to serve that purpose. That is wellness
0: to me. Well, that resonates. I feel like, you know, as I move through the world and I interact with different people, that's something that everyone is searching for. Sometimes we have an idea of how to get there sometimes not. So in the book, you coined this diagnosis that I know so many people that I work with really experience, right? Busy brain. Can you tell us about
2: that? Busy brain has nothing to do with our 24-7 news cycle, Mm -hmm. uh, our over-packed schedules. Busy brain is your internal state of your brain that I think we in traditional neurology and psychiatry, quite frankly, have missed. And what Busy Brain stands for is when you're under chronic stress, a particular pattern of neuroinflammation arises that's very different than the acute stress model that's been discussed to death, and I I think, quite frankly, almost no longer relevant in a post-pandemic world. And when this pattern of neuroinflammation happens, three key symptoms are happening in adults that may not have been there before. You have worries or ruminating anxiety and feeling anxious all day. And now you're not able to focus all the way to adult onset ADHD. And coupled with that, if that wasn't bad enough, you're wired and you're tired. But when you try to fall asleep, you can't shut down the racing 72 warring conversations in your brain. Or you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. So adult onset ADHD, insomnia, and anxiety
0: that is the triad known as the busy brain. Mhm. Can you tell us some of the factors that you have found that play into having a busy brain?
2: Absolutely, Maya. You know some of the key things to really understand, it can start from this attitude of wearing stress as a badge of honor or just feeling like you have no choice. You are suffering and people are out there. I want to honor that single parents who need to pay a mortgage and homeschooling children all of the things. That can be it, but that's the external pressure. It's the state of our brain I really want to focus on and our mindset. So it starts there, and then that acute stress turns into chronic stress that's going on for months or years, and you add one more stressor on top of it, and it can push us to the edge. And this neuroinflammation that keeps happening happens beyond the limbic system in the acute stress response we know and goes to the hypothalamus, an area of the brain Specifically, the SCN nucleus that controls our circadian rhythm, our biological clock. It governs the 24 hour cycle, the seasonal cycle, the annual cycle of every aspect of our brain and our body, not just the sleep wake cycle or uh, a woman's hormonal cycle, but in men and in women, your digestion, your rest, your immune health. And that, when it is off, I call it the airport traffic control tower of the brain. It's now sending signals of delay or cancel flight to the rest of your brain and your body. And that's where symptoms of chronic stress start to show up in cognition. Your memory, your mood, your sleep, and then your physical health, joint pain, triggering of an autoimmune disease, acid reflux, and digestive issues, worsening hormone health, the list goes on and on.
1: Rumi, one of the things that I love about the book uh, is just this interspersion of your humor, but also a very <laughs> a very sobering kind of story. I'm gonna just read, uh, I believe this is in the early chapter, maybe even chapter one, Girl Maybelline, you lied to me. This mascara ain't waterproof. And then you go through and I'd like for you to actually recount what happened to you and tell our listeners about kind of where you had to go. get to this point.
2: And it's humbling to go back to that woman that I don't even recognize anymore, but I was raised proud daughter of immigrants. English is a third language with one success mantra. We have one daughter and you will become a doctor. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) I'm here for it with the um, Indian auntie in my Yes. It is. Uh And
2: and it was a community of aunties that helped to make it happen. And it became this community effort that Mushtaq's only daughter was going to become a doctor. And I was invited early in my childhood into their afternoon chai parties and really just trained with this academic excellence. And on the outside, it looked like I had made it. I entered neurology at a time where less than 5% of the brain doctors in the United States were women, having collected all the right titles, doctor, researcher, dutiful daughter, curator, a fabulous designer shoes, like everything on the outside sparkled. I have no explanation why on the outside, perfectly curated life, she did everything right. I'm driving to the hospital between 6 and 7 a.m. crying, and I don't know why. And right when I, you know, medicate with chocolate at 6 a.m. and go rushing into the hospital in heels, this disarming chest pain starts. And listen, I was only in my young 30s. I went to the doctor And what does every doctor tell you? You're just stressed out, like every other type A personality that's out there. And they thought it was just acid reflux. Well, it turned out it wasn't. I have a... At that time, a rare medical disorder. More and more people are getting diagnosed with it, interestingly known as achalasia, but we missed it initially. And it didn't get diagnosed until they found what's known as Barrett's esophagus or precancerous lesions. And by that time, the stricture and the dysmotility was there that I was waking up in the middle of the night choking on my own saliva, vomit, aspirating, getting frequent pneumonia, and I end up in life-saving surgery. And I'm sitting there in the hospital, literally thinking nothing I learned in medical school or at the chai parties with my aunties prepared me for this. I don't know what to do next in my life. And that's when this journey started. And I'm here now after a decade of not only healing myself and you read the stories, but digging in the research, realizing I wasn't alone in that dark place.
0: Your story is so, it's both significant and extraordinary, right? And I know for so many people who are the children, the first gens, even the second gens, those third culture kids, this rings very, very true, right? They're in you know Afro Caribbean households. They say there are three options: Mm -hmm. medical doctor, a -hmm. PhD doctor, and a Mm -hmm. lawyer. (laughs) Right. Those are the three options. Like, that's it.
2: (laughs) Otherwise, otherwise you are bringing your ancestor shame. Shame. Same, same. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Mm -hmm. So we know, you know what I mean? We know that this is just pervasive and true, right? You talk so eloquently and, I mean, share this imagery of all these factors that got to this kind of fever pitch and pushed you to the brink of your existence Then you kind of came to terms with needing to modify how you approached your own health and wellness. I'm wondering, what was that
2: like? We didn't have terms like mental health crisis or burnout back then. And I don't know that they really capture what's happening inside your spirit when hope departs your soul. I was in a really dark place. And I'm now back home in the small town in Illinois, and my aunties who are still alive are coming to visit their daughter Romy. They can't believe this has happened. And they said something to me. It says, If the lights are on and nobody is home. And I think this message is for anybody listening right now, no matter. What your background is, is is there somebody in your life that is avoiding your gaze? The lights are on and nobody is home. Could you give them extra love? Could you tell them you are there for them, that you will hold hope for them even if they have none? I think that's the most important thing for me to say because I spent a lot of time trying to find who was the master or the teacher that was missing in my life that had the answers for me. And purposely, you're reading the stories of male allies, teachers, and sponsors that came along. But what is the most significant leadership lesson you will learn from each of these individuals that came along? They didn't say, Maya, here's your answer. This is what you're doing wrong, Kavita. It was this reflection, this mirror that I was forced to look back within myself. And I had to reach that dark place in order to do it. And I think that's the lesson in this is you have got to heal your busy brain and mind, body, and spirit and do whatever takes you to stillness away from the distraction of the world. And then the answers come.
0: We're going to take a break here. But when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Romy and how she went about curing her busy brain. And we'll see how she translated that experience into her eight-week plan to cure all of our busy brains as well. Stay tuned.
2: Families have a lot going on.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Well Now, Slate's podcast on wellness. I'm Maya Feller. And I'm Kavita Patel.
1: We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Romy Mushtaq, author of the USA Today's best selling book, The Busy Brain Cure. All right, Romy, you just talked about your own journey and kind of how you were led to thinking about curing your busy brain, but it ultimately led you to kind of create that shift, literally, and maybe, and the eight-week plan. So maybe you can just walk people through what that process entails, take it in any direction, the eight-week plan, as well as kind of how you break down shift.
2: We call the protocol brain shift or the brain shift protocol. And what is a brain shift? We've heard with uh, several books, like from BJ Fogg, Tiny Habits and Atomic Habits from James Clear about the power of taking micro steps or tiny habits. I had a little time on my hands during the global pandemic. I wasn't flying around consulting and speaking. And companies were finally paying attention to the mental health crisis in the workplace. And nobody wanted to hear, just eat berries and breathe and everything's going to be okay. And I realized like there needed to be deeper research done. And so people take the busy brain test, which is a stress test, a neuropsychology stress test. And we had 17,000 adults. Take this test, our, our corporate clients digitally. And we were able to collect enormous amounts of research 20 questions that look at how stress is affecting your brain health, mental health, and physical health. And from that data, I was able to say, What are the micro steps in a protocol we could give to busy people to help actually heal the burnout? And that's where that started. And so, Brain Shift is an actual acronym shift that tackles the five root causes of clinically in the brain and the body, what's disrupted that needs to be assessed and fixed. And it could be a little different for all of us. And so shift stands for five things s is sleep or your circadian rhythm h is the role of hormones specifically your thyroid i is markers of inflammation f is how we can use food to fuel our brains without going on a diet and t is the role of technology
1: talk us through the eight-week protocol because some might be saying "Romy, let's get real it's taken me decades to get to where i am now can I really do this in eight weeks? And I'm sure you've had some in your audience say the same thing.
2: I mean, that's the voice of the Indianantes coming back. When we have a busy brain, the voice of judgment comes back in, right? And chapter 10, or the first week of the protocol, is step one, take the busy brain test and get your score listen, I'm a practical brain doctor. I want to know what your score is. This is a validated neuropsychology test. We relabeled it as a busy brain test in order to take it inside corporate America. Week two of the protocol, we start with the S or the sleep and the circadian rhythm, have a really strict protocol of what we call the seven day sleep challenge that we actually hope you continue through the rest of the eight weeks, but especially that first week or two. And these steps are based in cognitive behavioral therapy, CBTI for insomnia, as well as a couple of supplement recommendations that have been tested. And I I will give them right here to the listeners. It's 5 HTP to take. and, And please read the book. The caveats are there and talk to your doctor before you go and magnesium glycinate. And we find within seven to 10 days, Kavita, people are falling asleep and staying asleep. And that already starts to make believers out of everyone. And then as we go to week three, We introduce digital detox and the importance of taking a brain pause during the workday. We're in front of screens, most of my clients, all day long, and doing the digital detox 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime. And week four in this restoration of sleep and the circadian rhythm is then also some mindfulness based exercises I call the brain pause. And it's kind of teaching us in a moment how to brain shift and use tools. And this was because early on in my speaking and consulting career, I was teaching meditation and mindfulness to companies. And executives were coming to me and athletes going, you know, this is all great, but I can't shut my brain down to meditate. I'm failing at meditation. By the way, there is no failing at meditation. And I realized there's something deeper going on before we can introduce a a straight mindfulness meditation practice, and this was the busy brain. And so by this time, we give people the actual techniques and alternatives to sitting down and emptying your mind. So that's the first four weeks right there. By this time, people are falling asleep, staying asleep, and then we can introduce the back half of the protocol, weeks five through eight, that are really meant to give you energy and
0: sustained focus. So as a dietitian, I was really Interested, Romy, in your discussion around the value of continuing to include comfort food versus eliminating it entirely. I love the F part of the shift, right? I intentionally tell my patients I want them to include foods that are culturally relevant in their pattern of eating. And you also talk about the impact of added sugars and simple carbohydrates that's really found in abundance in our food supply and their very real impact on a busy brain. How do you like to talk about both of those truths without judgment or shame?
2: You know, I give an homage to my Indian aunties here, and a phrase in Hindi or in Urdu, and Punjabi, all three, moomita karo, sweeten the mouth. And it really can translate into after you've had a spicy, heavy, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali meal with spices and ghee, to put something sweet in your mouth. But it's this idea that we should have sweetness in our life, in the words and the foods we eat. And then let's talk practicality. You speak about cultural appropriateness, Maya, and your your background, understanding this as a dietitian, but it doesn't really track in the way nutrition and diets are sold in the marketplace, in in the weight management, weight loss marketplace. And even by colleagues in in my world of integrative functional medicine, these diets are largely Western, Anglo-Saxon, any food that doesn't fit into that parameter is shamed as it's going to kill you, cause cancer, cause inflammation. And I thought that was the most toxic thing I was dealing with as a chief wellness officer. And these foods have the ability to anchor in our mind and our spirit and create core memories of joy. And the last thing we should be doing in the wellness world and health world is putting shame to that and causing trauma around a core message of joy. And so we tested this. A thousand, more than a thousand executives went through this eight-week program. And we said, please schedule your comfort food meals. And when they would come on live to the virtual calls, the first thing we would ask is not how's everyone doing? What comfort food did you eat this past week? You know, Maya, the key thing is, is we don't start the nutrition protocol until you're in week five of the eight week program. And there's a reason why we want people to calm the neuroinflammation and restore their circadian rhythm in the brain. And When you normalize your circadian rhythm, you're also normalizing the control of hunger and digestion, your leptin and ghrelin levels. And so what happens is you're no longer stress eating. So an example is, is if it's your child's birthday party this weekend, have that cupcake and ice cream. Don't let your child see you making a face with a food to celebrate their birthday. But the difference with comfort food and that memory with your child versus stress eating and you have a busy brain is you're going to go into the back room while the kids are running all around making a mess and eat six cupcakes because you can't handle all the noise. That's stress eating. And what we find is once we calm down that stress eating and you can schedule your comfort food, it was incredible. People not only were finding their focus again without the yo-yo of the insulin in the brain and the blood sugar, but they were reducing what I call the brain bloating and the belly bloating.
1: Let's talk about my busy brain. I'm not going to try to sound difficult, but I've struggled as I've read this and seen the evidence. And by the way, after I'd had my first child, I had probably postpartum depression, but I had turned to food so much that, Romy, I had an automatic Amazon order of a full box of full-size candy bars that I would go through each week. It was such a signal of you know, hey, there's something going on here. But despite being a doctor and being around doctors and all the resources, I still couldn't figure that out. It's so hard because what I wanted to do and still want to do, Romy, I want to take your lessons, your incredible journey, and in, and great research. I want to try to give that to as many people. That's what you want to. I want everyone to benefit from this. But there is a part of me where it feels so hard. First of all, it feels so difficult. Like if you are some of like my patients who, you know, maybe they've got two jobs, maybe might be single parents. They don't have sometimes what feels like a luxury to do some of the shift. So what are ways to do this? What are some practical ways that even considering like, you know, just just where, meeting people where they're at.
2: When we're in that burnout place, obviously, that's the first thing I hear. Really, this is going to work another program. And I want to say to you and every listener what I wish someone had said to me when I was sitting in the surgeon's office. Your brain is not broken. Your mind is not a mess. And hope did not depart your soul. Just take my hand and let's do it one brain shift at a time. And that if you can't find that hope, then I will hold it here with you. I know what it feels like to be in that lonely place. And for high-functioning intellectuals, sometimes that can turn into cynicism. And cynicism that we also then project onto other people. So I want to tell you, in my field of integrative and functional medicine, I will call out my colleagues for the expensive protocols. But I purposely, purposely made this book so that the protocols are covered by traditional insurance so number one it's covered and two when you talk about the chocolate that was arriving at your door like i get it chocolate was my major food group to cope the the serotonin high that we get from eating chocolate and there's no judgment there you know there's this intellect thing of i'm a smart professional i should know better But man, when our spirit is hurting, we just do in that moment what we can to cope. So I think that's the first thing I would welcome is hold compassion for yourself and anyone that's listening and get your score. And that's why we just broke it down into week by week. And by the way, by the end of the eight weeks, there isn't some special diet or any food you need to buy. There isn't, you know, the supplements we even designed you can buy for under $10 a bottle. I mean, it's there. And It's an investment in our health because if we don't, the opposite comes true is you can't take care of your children. You can't continue that job that is putting food on the table for your family. Mm -hmm.
0: So as you're talking about this being something for humanity and people, I also really want to acknowledge that there are all of these longstanding systemic and inequitable structural barriers that have these very real intense impacts, racism, sexism, you know, ableism. And then I think for me, the most glaring is the damning of people who live in poverty, right? And you started out by talking about this chronic stress that people experience. And we know that it has this really real impact on health. And when we look at the rates of non-communicable conditions like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, we see that there are communities that are disproportionately impacted. Of course, there are parts of managing stress that are 100% individual. And you lay it out like beautifully. How do we come to terms, you know, with these systemic and inequitable structures that are really beyond that individual control? How do how can we mitigate the impact that they have on stress and the busy brain?
2: I wish Maya had an eloquent and simple answer for you. It's probably the one thing that haunts me as a chief wellness officer. I will say this is why. I know firsthand that corporate wellness programs are part of the solution. I firmly believe that corporate wellness, which also, to your point, not only addresses physical and mental health, but financial well-being, Is a part of that solution that is now alleviating the sick care system in America. And, you know, this is what I I speak to at large when other companies call me to speak on leadership and building a culture of wellness, is we have to address that. So to your point, if someone is not able to create a standard of living that they have food or, or safe housing, absolutely the stress is going to play into non-communicable disease, they likely have less access to adequate health care, even health insurance, like all the things. And that's why I, as... As a thought leader, and the two of you as thought leaders that have platforms are saying, What can we do? And it is specifically my role. It was the goal and the initiative that was put out by my current CEO and the entire executive leadership team at Great Wolf Resorts was: we are creating a wellness program for all PAC members, even our part-time employees. This isn't just, you know a wellness perk for the C suite anymore. I firmly have hope in that that you know 70% of Americans are employed by a company a, a large company that provides benefits and so when we lose that hope when we have a busy brain and hope departs I invite you first and foremost as a leader as an individual to cure your busy brain. Because when you do, you come back to this place of hope and you say, what is my end goal and how do I reverse engineer it? I couldn't do anything if I do today if I still was in that place of burnout and busy brain. And it's the number one lesson I give anybody here. We can't go out and change the world for our children, our family, our team members, our company until you take care of your brain first.
1: And then tell me, Romy, just in closing, and thank you for kind of going through a Very important journey with us. Why is it important to you that we tackle our busy brains in order to have a life of health and wellness?
2: On an individual level, there is this loss of connection and social isolation that's happening. And we've allowed digital devices to invade our workspace and our social lives And it's only fueling the adult onset ADHD, anxiety, and insomnia even more. And then we end up on what I call in the book the stimulant sedative cycle. You're jacked up on stimulants all day like caffeine or Adderall. And at night you need alcohol or prescription sleeping pills. And again, no shame. But like when you think of wellness and what it means to be well now and have that alignment, you cure your busy brain. You can always hear what is it your spirit desires to do and your brain, and your body for yourself, for your loved ones, for humanity. And the hope comes back in. And we become then the hope holders for the people that are coming behind us. And that's what it means to be one now, but it starts with your own brain.
1: Dr. Romy Mushtaq is a board-certified neurologist, public speaker, and the USA Today's best-selling author of The Busy Brain Cure, The Eight-Week Plan to Find Focus, Tame Anxiety, and Sleep Again. Thank you, Romy, for speaking with us here at WellNow.
2: Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Kavita. That's
0: WellNow for this week. Our show is produced by Vic Whitley-Berry. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio.
1: If you have something you'd like for us to cover, email the show at wellnow@slate.com, And be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Join us next Wednesday as we tackle another health and wellness story. I'm Kavita Patel.
0: And I'm Maya Feller. Thanks for listening.